Now, if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been in this series called Letters to the Exiles. We're looking at 1 and 2 Peter, and what he's done is he's writing to the church in what is present-day Turkey, and he's telling them how it is that they live out the gospel now, because they're living in a culture that has become hostile towards Christianity. And the idea behind this is that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we don't really fit in with the rest of the world around us because we have a different culture that we're living out of, the culture of the kingdom of heaven. We're living according to the kingdom ethic. And so he's going through and he's talking about how it is that we continue to live with a strong faith in Jesus, modeling and demonstrating God's love to those who are around us. Really, the church is a colony of heaven. We're here to demonstrate the culture of the kingdom, to demonstrate the love and the power of the king, and in doing so, we spread our culture to those who are around us. And now he turns his attention at this point in the letter to begin to talk about persecution. Now, when the church started, originally there was a lot of peace. People loved the church. They thought they were great. There wasn't any persecution. Times were good. The church was growing. But then what happened was the people around them started to figure out what they actually believed. And as soon as they found out what the church believed, they didn't like them anymore, and they started to persecute them. And that's a lot like uh, what we find today. In the United States of America, 83% of all people identify themselves as Christians. Now, I would venture to say that 83% of the people in the United States of America have not read the Bible. Because everybody loves Jesus until you read what Jesus actually said, and then you're like, oh, I don't know about this guy anymore. He seems like he's really asking a lot of me. What he's telling me about how we're supposed to live our life is something that's completely different than what I thought he said. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow after me, you have to deny yourself, you have to take up your cross, and you have to follow me. That's not something that's really well received by most people. Because when he says you have to deny yourself, he's saying that the wills and the desires and the things that you're really into and going for in life you have to deny those things and subject yourself to me and to my rule and my reign in your life. Now, culturally for us, that's the exact opposite. We live in a culture not of subjecting ourselves to someone else, but we're all about gratifying ourselves. That's the great thing that we do in our culture is we have these pursuits, these ideas and desires, and we just go after them. And if someone says that you need to subject yourself and to deny these desires, then you're just absolutely crazy. And then he says you have to take up your cross. That's not a fun thing. What that means is you have to die to yourself. He says that there's an old way that you are living your life, and if you want to come and be my disciple, that you have to leave this old way of life behind. That I've called you to something new. I've called you to something better. But you can't step into it until you leave the past behind you. And then he says, you have to follow me. That means that the things that he taught those are the things that now we have to practice. It means the places that he's calling you to go, those are the places that you have to go. We follow Jesus wherever he leads us. Now, his teachings were so countercultural that it became offensive to all of those who were in the area around the churches. And he teaches things like loving your enemies. What Jesus taught about the idea of greed or sexual purity, uh, all the different Christian morality, materialism, uh, hatred, the things that he says we have to do, we have to forgive everyone who wrongs us. These were things that people couldn't accept in the world around them. It was only the people in the church that were believing these things. So what happens is now those outside of the church begin to persecute the people inside of the church to get them to walk away from this new faith that they're living out. 
and they begin to lose things. They begin to lose their jobs. They begin to have their homes taken away from them. They're not allowed to do business inside of the city, and some of them are even losing their lives. Now, this came as a shock to the Christians. Nobody ever comes to Jesus and you say, all right, Jesus, I'm going to lose everything. Let's go. Let's do this. When you come to Jesus, you're, you're in awe of God's love for you and how great he is and that he would forgive you of your sins. You're just enamored with him. You think this is the all-powerful, the almighty God. And now what's going to happen is I'm going to go out there and I'm going to love my neighbors. For the first time in my life, I'm going to actually love my neighbors. I'm going to be concerned about their well-being. I'm going to try to, to show them the love that I have found from God. I want to minister to my neighbors. I want to meet their needs. I want to do all of these things. You never think that that's going to result in people hating you. And so this comes as a shock to them. Like, why are these people persecuting me when all I'm trying to do is to show them this incredible thing that I have found? And then some of them are thinking, you know, if, if the almighty, all-powerful God really is almighty and all-powerful, then why is it that he's allowing these things to happen to us? And they start to think that maybe God has failed, that God couldn't protect them, that maybe God isn't real because if he was real, then why would he let them be going through these kinds of sufferings when all they've done is choose to follow him? So many of them are beginning to abandon the faith and many are considering abandoning the faith. So Peter writes to them about the persecution they are going through and he says this to them in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while they are doing good. So Peter starts out by saying, uh, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you as though something strange were happening. Now when we read this and we think, don't be surprised that you're going through a fiery trial, there is nothing that would surprise us more than going through a fiery trial. There's this disconnect for us as Western Christians. We read this like, what are you talking about? Like, life is good. Life is easy for us. If someone actually came and persecuted me, this would be a shocking thing for me. That's not the norm of my experience. I mean, in our culture, it's advantageous for you to be a Christian. Look at every president, every politician you have. What are they? They're all Christians, right? How many of them do you think would be elected if they came up like, hey, actually, I'm, I'm an atheist, I'm a Satanist, I'm a Buddhist, you know, Muslim, whatever. Like, they know that they would not win an election if they weren't going out there and saying, oh, yeah, I'm Team Jesus, let's go, let's do this thing. Or look at business people. What do they do? They go to church and they make connections. I mean, culturally, Christianity has been such a huge part of, of who we are that to not be Christian is actually a disadvantage for you inside of our culture, in your business dealings, political dealings, things like that. We live in a culture that has, you know, identified itself as Christian. But that's not the norm historically for the church, and it's not the norm for what the church is experiencing all around the world. When we look at Brother Abraham, uh, 
every time he comes here and he talks about the stuff that's happened to him, he's like, oh yeah, I got beaten up seven times and he's talking about baptizing people in the river and they came and they tried to drown me. They pulled me into a room, they put a gun in my head and they pulled the trigger, but it misfired. It's like, that, that's, I haven't, I think the worst thing that ever happened to me in my entire life was in ninth grade, we had a prayer group and someone, someone threw a skittle at us. Like, that's the persecution that I have endured as a Christian in the United States of America. And if I was smart, I would have prayed with my eyes open so I could have caught it and enjoyed the Skittle. Like, we don't go through persecution and we don't go through hardships like most Christians around the world do. The Catholic Church estimates that about 100,000 people every year lose their lives because they identify themselves as Christians. So what we experience isn't the norm. When we see actual persecution, we're good at thinking like a fake persecution. Uh, you know, someone calls you a name and says, oh, you believe in Sky Daddy. That's not persecution. That's name calling, you know, whatever. But that's not a fiery trial. But what many believers all around the world have gone through is extreme persecution because they call on the name of Jesus. Because they identify themselves as a follower of Christ and they're going to live according to the kingdom of the culture of God no matter what the cost might be. And things are changing. Right now we're culturally Christian, but you can look around and you can see this is beginning to change. The foundation of America is shifting. And that's okay. People are like, are you concerned that we're moving away culturally from Christianity? And I'm like, no, not really. I think this is a fantastic thing for the church. You know, for the first 300 years, Christianity was illegal. And then Constantine becomes emperor, conquers Rome. He has this vision of the cross, and so he decides that now the entire Roman world is going to be Christian. So what happened is now everybody is a Christian. You can still be worshiping all of these other idols. You can be a pagan, half-saved, whatever. But hey, the emperor says we're Christian, so now we're all Christians. And that was the beginning of the weakening of the church. Once the persecution left, once it stopped costing you something to be a Christian, then you got fat and lazy. And this is the thing. What is the greatest killer of us as Americans? We eat ourselves to death. Our life is so good, it's so easy that we just keep eating. For a lot of people around the world, the idea of eating yourself to death is an impossibility because you're spending so much time just trying to get food. Those people, if you can get enough food, they're in great shape. They live long, healthy lives. But because food is so abundant and it's so easy, we just destroy our health. And the same thing happens for us as Christians. Anytime you're not having to work hard, anytime it's not costing you something, you begin to become spiritually lazy. Tertullian, who was one of the church fathers, said this, and it's a, a crazy thing. He says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of revival. He drew a direct connection between the suffering that the church goes through and the persecution that it goes through it also relates to the strength that it has and the number of people that we're able to reach for Jesus. Because when it costs you something to follow Jesus, when being a disciple, when saying that I follow Jesus isn't culturally acceptable, when it's not the norm, when it's not advantageous to you in your culture, suddenly it means that you have to be strong. Suddenly it means that you've counted the costs and know what might happen when you say that I follow Jesus. So Peter's saying, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And that is going to come to us one day. 
It might not be in my lifetime. It might not be in my children's lifetime. It might be in a few years. Cultures change so quickly. You never know where it's going to come and what's going to happen. And so it might seem like kind of a crazy message. Like, why are you talking about persecution? We live in the least persecuted place in the entire world. And it's because Peter says that we aren't to be surprised when it comes to us as though something strange is happening. And here's what Jesus himself said. These are some more of the encouraging things that you can print on a bumper sticker and I'll put that on your car. In John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In John 16, 1 through 2, he says, I have said these things to keep you from falling away. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. In Mark 12, 11 through 3, he says, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is saying that the world is going to hate you because it hated him. When we follow Jesus, it means that we follow his teachings. It means that we follow the way of life that he has taught us. And so if the world hated Jesus and what he taught, and if he, had to be, if he was killed because of the things that he taught and the way that he lived his life, then what are they going to do to us who follow after him? That's the same thing. We're not above Jesus. We're not above our master. They hated him for what he taught and did. They're going to hate us when we believe what he taught and when we begin to practice the things that he taught. And this is why Jesus says he's telling us these things. It's because he says, I don't want you to be surprised by them when they happen. Because if something catches you by surprise, you won't know how to react to it. You won't be mentally or emotionally or even spiritually prepared for it. And so the temptation will be for you to just turn away and to fit back into the culture that's around you. And Jesus is saying, know that this is a very real possibility for your life. That it could cost you everything to be my disciple. And when you're mindful of that, then you're going to position yourself in a place of where when it comes, you're able to go through it. Now, if I were just to, instead of having children and watching them grow and you know, become teenagers and all that comes along with teenagers, if I just got a, a child and said, here you go, you can go out and drive my car, and they crashed it, and they came back, and I'm like, what, are you, what have you done? I had no idea what happened. I'm giving you back to whoever I got you from. But because I've raised my children up and I've, I now am aware of the fact that sometimes kids don't make the best decisions and sometimes they don't listen to you or obey you, now I know that as my children grow into teenagers, they're probably going to continue to do that. So I'm mentally, I'm psychologically and emotionally prepared for this. When they come home and tell me my car's crashed, I'll be like, well, are you okay? Instead of, what have you done? Is my car okay? Because I'm mentally prepared for it. So Jesus is saying that you have to be prepared you have to know that this could be a very real part of your life as my disciple. We have it good right now. Being a Christian in America is incredibly easy. But when the times change, will your faith change? And that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Because whenever you take a test, and that's what trials are, a trial is a test. Whenever you take a test, it reveals to you what you really believe or what you really know. 
Now, I could sit here before you and say, you know what, I really believe in working out. Like, everybody should wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning. We should go lift weights. We should go running. We should eat right, get in shape, all that stuff. It's easy for me to spout that off and to say I believe in this because it's easy to do that. But when the alarm clock goes off at 5 a.m., that's the test. Do I really believe that that's what I should be doing with my life? When I have to actually get out of the bed and go to the gym, do I really believe that going to the gym is a benefit to me that I should be willing to wake up for? I could tell you I love the quadratic equation. Like, I just am blown away by the beauty of this math. But when the teacher puts the paper down in front of me and says, all right, solve this one, then that's the moment where it is revealed whether I really know or understand or believe in the quadratic equation. And the same thing is true with our faith. It's easy to sit back and say, I love Jesus. He's awesome. I love following Jesus. It's so incredible. But when the test comes, what you really believe will be revealed where your faith really is will be made known. You see, the goal of persecution is to keep you from following Jesus. When the culture around you says that, I want you to, to get back in line, I don't like what it is that Jesus teaches, so I want you, I'm going to add pressure to you. I'm going to try to get you to conform to the way of the culture that's around you. We don't want you to live out the culture of the kingdom of God. When I was in high school, we had this exchange student I never forget it because I feel so bad for him to this day. And he showed up, and I was, this is 97-ish, 1997, and the first day of school, and I see this kid walking down the hallway. He's coming towards me. He has a mullet with the feathery bangs, and he's wearing a Van Halen tank top, cut off, like, short, short shorts. I mean, so awkwardly short. And he's walking down the aisle, and he's just smiling at everybody, and everybody's like, freak, you know, like, oh my gosh. 1980 called, they want their style back. And every, what they do is they just begin to mercilessly assault this kid emotionally and verbally because we look at someone who's different from us. We look at someone who isn't expressing the cultural norm that we have all accepted and lived by, and we hate the diversity. We hate that someone is different from us. And so we do everything we can to apply pressure to them to try to get them to look like we do and to live like we do. So this poor kid had to make a decision. Am I going to continue to dress this way and wear the things that I like? Or am I going to wear the baggy pants and the flannel shirts like everybody else so that they will stop making fun of me? The next day, he was wearing really wide pants and he was wearing a flannel shirt. He still had the mullet, so we still made fun of him about that. And he got that cut the next day, I believe. So <laughs> we, you know, we just pressured him. We couldn't stand that he was different than us. And that's what happens with us with our faith is you can call yourself a Christian and you can identify yourself as a Christian as long as you act like everybody else that's around you, as long as you live like everybody else that's around you, as long as you... It's been a while since this happened. I've kind of missed that. <laughs> Last time I was teaching on fasting and started showing like popcorn and singing hot dogs and stuff. <laughs> so, good memories. This is what we're going to remember someday when we have our own building. You know, like, remember the days when we get to used to have these comedic interruptions? But it'll be gone in just a minute. And it's always at the serious parts, too. It's funny how that happens. Anyways, when you decide that you're going to live your life for Jesus, you're not just going to say it and live like everybody else, but when you decide that I'm going to really live out the truth that God has called me to, or I'm going to live in a way that matches up with the teachings of Jesus, then the people around you are going to begin to pressure you to get you to live the way that they do. 
See, the perfect example that we see of this is in the 1930s Germany. When Nazism was beginning to rise and was becoming the, the great cultural powerhouse that it was, there were two types of Christians. There were two types of churches that existed. And the first type of church was the church that it was easy for. They supported Hitler. They said, because of, we know what's going to happen to us if we oppose him, then we're going to fly the Nazi flag inside of our churches. We're going to support Hitler. We're going to go along with all of his plans and all of that. And so what they would do, there are accounts of people who described that they would be having their church services and they would hear the trains full of Jews on the way to the concentration camp and they would hear their cries for help and for mercy. And the way that they dealt with that was they began to sing hymns as loud as they could to drown out the sound of those who were crying for help around them. And they were perfectly acceptable in that culture. They fit right in. There was no persecution for them. And then there was another type of Christian in Nazi Germany. And they were those who said that this is not the truth that God has called us to. That Hitler, what you are doing is evil. It's wrong in the eyes of God. That we've been called to something better for this. And we will never be silenced on those who you are destroying. And they went to the concentration camps and they laid down their lives. Bonhoeffer, who was a brilliant uh, author and theologian, he was German, and he moved to the United States of America, and he was uh, doing a lot of writing and teaching at a university. And when the persecution began to arise in Germany for the Christians who wouldn't bend their knee to the culture that was around them, he was heartbroken. When he began to hear that the churches were compromising the truth of God and that people were turning from their faith in Jesus, they were keeping the identity of a Christian, but they were compromising their faith. He was so broken by this that he decided that he was going to go back to Germany because he was going to encourage the church. He was going to call them to stand. He was going to oppose Hitler. And his friends told him that you're a fool, that if you go there, you're going to die. But he said it didn't matter. He said that the worst death would be staying here where I was safe and secure when my people needed me. And so he went back to Germany and it wasn't very long before he was arrested and before his life was taken from him because he dared to stand up and say that this is God's truth in this matter. I will never compromise. I'm going to live according to the culture of the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what any person can do to me. I am a follower of Jesus. And that happened in the blink of an eye where that kind of persecution came upon the German Christians. The fiery trials aren't something that was supposed to surprise them. Because these were a test of their faith. And when we look at someone like Bonhoeffer, we say, that's amazing, the strength that that man had, that he could go and he could stand up in that way, that he could be so bold to speak for a people who couldn't speak for themselves, that he would oppose Hitler, that he would stand up to the culture that was around him. And then we look at ourselves and we say, I don't have that kind of strength. That's not within me. I can't stand up to the trials that I am going to find myself in. If I found myself in that hour, I could not stand under that kind of pressure. That I'd take the easy way out. Well, here's the thing, is that none of us have that kind of strength naturally. We would all fail the test. But one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in us is it says that the Holy Spirit gives us boldness and that the Holy Spirit gives us strength. 
In fact, Paul says, I glory in my weakness because in the areas where I am weak, that's where God supernaturally strengthens me. See, God doesn't just give us the, the gift of salvation of we get to go spend eternity with you, but he also gives us power now to live a life that is different from those around us, the power to walk away from sin, to live according to God's plan for our lives, and he gives us the power to have boldness and the ability to stand in the face of temptation, to stand against any fiery trial that we come up against. Think about that. While we might be weak, the power of the living God dwells inside of us. What's impossible for God? He's the one who nothing is impossible for. I love how one of the times when Jesus is asked, like, hey, can you do this for me? And, and Jesus is like, is anything too hard for me? Like, you have to ask if I'm capable of doing this? I'm God. I can do anything. And that's what we have to realize is that in the face of the temptation, when we come into that test, we need to call on God. And we need to say, Jesus, I need your strength because I can't stand on my own. And if you're so proud that you think you can't stand on your own, you will find yourself falling very quickly. And the good thing is that Jesus will still pick you back up. But you need to call and say, God, I need you to strengthen me. I need your supernatural boldness so that I can bear witness to you and to your kingdom and your culture when the test comes upon me. And the third thing, that Paul or Peter says is that in suffering you identify with Jesus. When you suffer in the name of Jesus, it means that you're suffering because you are living a life like Jesus' life. The reason he says that the world hates us is because it first hated him. If it hated Jesus, then when we begin to live in a way that is Christ-like, people look at us and they see Jesus inside of us. And to people who are opposed to Jesus and his teachings, they will hate you too. But it says that it's good for us when we suffer for the name of Jesus because in doing so, we have identified with Jesus. It means that people look at us and they see Jesus in us. And it's like, well, why is that good? Because when Jesus returns in his glory, it says, that we will also identify with him in that. See, the world isn't going to continue on like it is forever. It isn't going to continue on with suffering and with hurt and with heartbreak and with sin dominating and ruining so many lives. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back in the fullness of his glory. He came into this world as a peasant baby, but he's coming back as the reigning and ruling king. And it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And if we have identified with him in his suffering, then it says that we will identify with him in his glory. That when he comes back, guess who benefits from that? We do. But we don't get to enjoy identifying with him in his glory unless we first have identified with him in his suffering. And then lastly, he says that we can entrust your soul to God. See, things didn't get better for the church. Things didn't get easier for them. There were other emperors that came along afterwards where there was just incredible persecution. Christianity was illegal. It was a, a, a sentence of death that was put upon you for identifying as a Christian. They were burned to light Nero's garden. They were fed to animals. They were killed by gladiators. Uh, I mean, all sorts of terrible things happened to people who said that I follow Jesus. And he says that in the midst of all of this suffering that you're going to go through, you can entrust your soul to God. And here's why. 
Jesus said this, and it's so beautiful. He says, don't fear the one who can destroy your body, but not your soul. So what we want is we want Jesus to say, hey, I want you to save me from the suffering. I don't want to go through this part of living the Christian life. I want my best life now. I want to be rich. I want to be healthy. I want to you know, have all these other things. And that's a part of the American dream that we've imposed onto the gospel. But what Jesus is saying is that I didn't come to take the suffering and the per- persecution away from you. I came to give you the strength to stand inside of it. I came so that you could stand in the suffering. I came so that even in the midst of your persecution, that this would be a platform for you to speak and to preach the gospel to those who are around you. When Paul was called to follow Jesus, uh, there was someone that came and prophesied over him, and Jesus actually spoke to him and said, I will call you to stand before kings and before governors so that you can proclaim the message of the gospel. And he did stand before governors and kings was because he'd first been arrested and he'd been beaten and he'd been stoned and he was on trial for his very life before them. But in the midst of this, Jesus was still using every opportunity so that he could share his love, so that he could share his glory and the plans and the purpose and the destiny that he created every one of us for. And you know what? That makes the suffering and the persecution worth it. Because we can entrust our soul to God. Because even though our bodies will, every single one of us one day, our bodies will be no more whether it be from just getting old and passing away or whether it be because our lives were required of us because of persecution. Every one of us one day will leave this earth and we will leave our bodies behind. But Jesus says that no one can destroy your soul. You can entrust that to me. You see, your life, it says, is hidden with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. And so you can have a joy, you can have peace, You can have contentment as you go through all of the persecution and suffering because there is nothing that anyone can do that can ever touch the new life that Jesus has given you, that can ever change the destiny of glory that we all have. There's nothing that can take our salvation away from us. It says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we can be assured of that because just as we choose to identify with Jesus in his suffering, we're only able to do that because he first chose to identify with us. See, God's already done the hard part. When we were far from God, it says that we were living as enemies of the cross. We were slaves to sin. It says that even then, God looked upon us and he had mercy on us. And he wasn't willing that we should live apart from him. He looked on us in our brokenness and he said that I can't bear that. And so Jesus came down. He took on human flesh. He lived amongst us. He identified with us. He knows what it's like to be heartbroken. He knows what it's like to be scared. He knows what it's like to be sick. He knows what it's like to suffer. Everything that we can go through, he's identified with us in that. Even the guilt and the shame and the condemnation of sin. Because it says that when he went to the cross, he took all of the sin of the world upon himself. He became the perfect sacrifice. He laid his life down and he died paying the penalty for our sin so that we might be able to identify with him in his righteousness. Because if he bore the price for our sin, then it's been taken from us. And now we are a people who are free. So we know that we can entrust ourselves to God. Because he's already done the hard work by coming to us.
becoming our sacrifice. Now it says that any of us, that all we have to do to be saved is to believe in our hearts and to confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when you do that, new life comes into you. Relationship with God the Father, the one who so perfectly created you, is established. And now he begins to speak to you and he leads you and he guides you through this life and he strengthens you. And if you're not a Christian here today, you listen to this sermon and you're like, why on earth would I want to be a Christian? When it means persecution and all these other terrible things. And Jesus said, count the cost of following me. You don't just do it lightly, but know what it could cost you. But here's the thing that I've found. And the reason that I turn my heart over to God and the reason that I will follow him every moment of my life is because in Jesus I found something that was worth so much more than anything this world had to offer me. In Jesus, I found the one who could put the broken pieces of my heart back together. In Jesus, I found the acceptance that I couldn't find anywhere else. In Jesus, I found the purpose and the perfect love that no one else could ever provide for me. And I said, it doesn't matter what it might cost me, it's worth it to attain this thing. It's worth it to attain the life, eternal life that God brings me. And that's what it comes down for for every one of us. When the day of persecution comes, don't be surprised by it. Know that it's a test of what your faith is and it's a test that you cannot stand of your own strength. You have to cry out to God to strengthen you in it. And you have to come to the point where you can say, God, I'm entrusting my soul to you. No matter what, I follow you and I trust that you are going to lead me into the path of everlasting life. You all stand with me this morning. I'm just going to ask God to speak to our hearts. And if you've never heard God speak to you before, then I'd encourage you to say, God, would you say something to me? Would you speak to me? Because he does. So Father, this morning we come before you and we quiet our hearts and we make still our souls and we ask that you would speak to us. thing that I think he's asking us is the same thing he always is asking and it's will you follow me come and follow me whether it be that you've identified yourself as a cultural Christian but you've never made the decision to follow Jesus regardless of the cost and to fully surrender yourself to him or maybe you've never done it before but this morning God's speaking to your heart and you're being moved by his love you're being moved by his voice that's speaking to you, then today's the day that you respond to it. And once again, it's this simple. You just believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. That means that he's the king, that he's the one that reigns and rules over all things. And now you say, Jesus, would you reign and rule over me? And I'll be obedient to follow you. And then it says, and you confess with your mouth, then you will be saved. If he's speaking that to you this morning, then respond to him and the free gift of salvation that he gives you. Or maybe he's calling you to be strong because you are going through some form of pressure, whether it be in your family or your workplace or wherever, but people are pressuring you and they're trying to get you to compromise on your faith and, and to get you to stop living out the culture of the kingdom of heaven. Then this morning God is saying, I want to pour my strength into you. And would you just cry out to Jesus and ask him, God, would you strengthen me? Would you make me one who is bold 
and stand strong in the face of all resistance and all pressure, that I would never bend my knee to anyone else but to you, and that you would give me the ability to clearly communicate the gospel and to live it out and to show love to those who might hate me, never to fight back against them because you came and you laid your life down for those who were your enemies. But Jesus, would you give me the ability to supernaturally love those who would oppose me because I follow you? And would you give me an open door of opportunity to speak your gospel to them? Father, we thank you for everything you've done in our hearts. We thank you for the way that you move in us. And Jesus has said that you are preparing for yourself a pure and a spotless church. Would you continue to shape us as your people, as your very family, into that which you've called us to be? Strengthen us, Father. Let us never compromise, but let us stand strong for you, whatever the price may be. And in doing so, that many would come to know you, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.